recording purposes, I believe. Is that correct? Are we okay? Um, Gordy has said much about Jim, but of course we all know that it's the Lord that has worked these things out. And um, it's a group of men that shepherd a body as well too, and we're just a part of that. It's fun to see some familiar faces. We've already greeted a few of you this morning. I'm sorry we have not been able to meet all of you this morning, and I'm trusting that my voice is carrying all the way to the back. Is that okay? We doing okay? Good. Um, I do want to introduce my family. Um, can you guys stand up? Is it possible? Okay. <laughs> there you go. Um, my lovely wife, uh, Bev, we've been married for 20 years. My son, Matthew, who's 17 and uh, going to be a senior at Naperville North High School. And my little girl, Sally, who's four and a half and um, our little princess. My mother-in-law and father-in-law have also come. Please stand. Came from Aurora, uh, near where we live in Naperville, and Marv and Barb Vandergeesen, thank you again for coming. Please greet them as well, too. So, And I trust that you will be greeting all of your new attenders as well. Let me just briefly say about this morning's um, service, as Gordy has alluded to, um, doing things a little differently. Um, kids, let me just uh, quickly say I apologize. I'm not very good with computers. And when your pastor, Steve, emailed me and said, boy, can you, here's an example of some pictures and things like that. I don't even have clip art on my computer. I use my computer so little that uh, um, it's basically to type things and to do work and business off of. And so I'm sorry. But what here's, here's my encouragement to you this morning as you listen to the Word of God is that if you pick up on something and I've done, we've done this before at our church during different services for the kids, if you pick up on something that you feel you can write down or draw a picture about, we still plan to meet after the service and just talk about the message, okay? So use that blank side or the flip side to draw something down, okay? Or to write something down. And for the rest of you, there's an outline for you. I trust you all have one. If not, I think there's still some around, I believe, is there not? If you need to get some. So make yourself uh, available to that. Um, Also, a little bit different as well, too, as I was um, just, uh, you know, as you continue to pray of how the service will work this morning and so forth, and we were singing some songs, and I was thinking about the message as I had studied this and desired to really come and uh, deliver this message to you this morning. Um, The song that we had sung... uh, um, in, song, uh, um, in the hymnal of 158, um, I'm sorry, Jake, what is that? Think About His Love um, is, is going to be a song that we're going to close with. I know it might be a little different for you, um, but I've asked Jake that after I'm done praying, kids stay put, and Steve, if you'd wait until we sing that song once through, it'd be great for us to just finish with that thought of God's grace and love for us as we walk from here. So we're going to do that as well, too. Uh, Thank you for your adjustment, Steve, to that. Well, also, um, some of you may remember in March, there was another young man about my height, but he probably wears something dirty around his face. It was a goatee. Dave Newton came here and preached a similar message and um, out of Nahum. Well, Dave Newton is a fellow elder, and he shares, him and I share a Sunday school class, and we have been working through Three minor prophets in the Old Testament. Nahum, we are now in Habakkuk, and we'll be going into Zephaniah. 
And Dave came and marched and preached out of Nahum 1, 1 through 8. You may remember that if you were here. I'm actually going to follow up with the following verses, 9 through 15. Um, And so I hope you don't find it that close. I trust you'll be challenged by the word this morning and what uh, the Lord has laid upon my heart to speak to you about. In fact, I've titled it, God will, and that's important, God will oppose the proud and give grace to those who humble themselves. It should be there right in your bulletin. The text, Nahum 1, 9 through 15. Now, as you think about that, you're probably thinking, well, he must have misquoted something. James 4, 6 says something similar, does it not? In fact, James 4, 6, God will, or God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Yes, it does say that, and I'm not looking to misrepresent God's word in any way. But I believe our text this morning is very similar. It's actually a snapshot of the very acts of God doing that, opposing the proud and giving grace to to those who humble themselves. In fact, it will occur. God will deal with the proud, those who are a part of Him. And He will give strength, endurance, and provision as needed to sustain you during difficult times, those who follow Him, those who humble themselves before Him even as the picture that Steve gave to us of that idea of bowing down. and That's a picture of humility. Rest assured, God will oppose and God will give grace. So to start with, as you see in your outline there, we're going to look at three main parts. I don't have it. Um, I must not be a purist and pa- or pastor because I don't have the three C's or the four B's or whatever. I just have... Context, text, and conclusion. And that's what we're going to look at together, if you don't mind. So, let's start with historical Assyria to get a context. It's very important for us to have a context of where we'll be. And while I start to speak, I trust that you've already opened your scriptures to Nahum. Nahum 1. Let me just, and I've got so much information I could have brought with me. But historically, you can read a lot about it. So let me hit some very main points. You may not have enough room to write some of them down, but they're there that you can write down. Some main points about Assyria you should know is they were extremely powerful. They were the powerhouse of the time during this message Nahum wrote, during this particular time. But they were enormously proud. This was a proud nation. The capital of Assyria was Nineveh. Very important for us to remember. Nineveh was the most majestic and fortified and filled with a group of people that were only concerned about themselves. That was Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. And usually when you hear about a capital, it it exemplifies what the rest of the nation is like. This is where the king lived, and this is where the majority of all the rulers were, Assyria being the nation, Nineveh being the capital. But you might remember something a little bit about Nineveh. In fact, a hundred years, a century prior to this particular message, a prophet by God was sent to Nineveh, was it not? Was he not? 
And that was Jonah. And Jonah went to Nineveh and spoke to that nation. Do you remember in a general sense what that message was? It was repent because your evil ways have come before the Lord or He will come against you in 40 days. And what's amazing about a godless nation is that they did just that. They listened. They they repented and turned from their ways. In fact, the king at that time declared a time of mourning and sackcloth of wearing and so forth and turned from their ways. But a hundred years later, a generation or two later, they were back even worse than they were before. Assyria returned to their evil ways. You know, and I just stop and think about that for a moment in the context of even Deuteronomy when parents are told to pass on to their children, pass on to their children the Word of God and the things that they're learning and point out things in life and say, that's what God is doing. That's how nations fall back into their previous times. They forget to pass on. And we also have children that don't listen. And we need to be aware of that. It is possible for any of us apart from the love of God and Christ, to fall back into our own ways. And we need to remember that we have been given a charge, parents, friends of parents even, even if you're single here today, we all have a duty to encourage one another to walk in the ways and to pass that on. To pass that on. So there's historical Assyria. Nineveh, had repented but returned back to their evil ways. Historical Israel. I'm going to do a brief overview in a similar way. Historical Israel. You know these thoughts. Israel was released from bondage by God out of Egypt. Returns to a land they started from. Sin existed within the tribes. Twelve tribes existed. They, because of their sinful ways, split. Ten tribes to the north called Israel. Samaria became the capital. Two tribes to the south called Judah. Jerusalem was that capital. And so when you read through the Old Testament, don't be confused when you hear about Israel and Judah. They are two different separate things going on. In God's economy, God was dealing with them in different ways. In fact, what we'll find even this morning that Israel was the first that God had brought judgment against um, bringing his punishment against them. In fact, in Second Kings 17, if you would turn there with me, just flip over to Second Kings 17. It talks about the punishment that God brings against Israel. It's Assyria coming against Israel. This is the time frame in which we find the writing of Nahum. Just prior to this, Israel is captured, and in, in Second Kings 17, I'll just give you a few verses here. In the twelfth year, verse 1, and I'm, by the way, I am reading out of the ESV, so I apologize if you have a different version, but it's very similar, so just follow with me. Verse 1 of chapter 17, Second Kings. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hosea, the son of Eli, became to reign in Samaria over Israel. Here's that picture we got there. Look down to verse 6. In the ninth year of Hosea, nine years passes, 
the king of Assyria captured Samaria and carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah and on the harbor and on the river of Gazan and in the cities of the Medes. And look at verse 7. Why did this happen? Why was it that Israel was punished? Verse 7, And this occurred because the people of Israel sinned against the Lord, their God, who brought who had brought them out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods. And it goes on. It's an awful picture. But they began to compromise their faith, Israel did. They began to take on what the world had around them. It's not that they were to leave the world, but they began to take on the gods and worship them as well too. They placed the big god, G, down with the other supposed gods in place of that and compromised. And so Israel is God. God is punishing Israel now because of that. Second Kings. So there's the history of Israel. As a matter of fact, if you would, flip over to Isaiah 10. Isaiah 10 gives us a picture of this of a prophecy, a prophecy of what will happen. I don't know if you realize, but Isaiah was the prophet to the northern kingdoms, Israel, during the time of Nahum. And so here, Isaiah is speaking a prophecy that God has spoken to him. Isaiah 10, verse 5. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against a people of my wrath I command him. Take, to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the myrrh of the streets. And so it's a, it's a prophecy of God sending Assyria against them, against Israel. But what the rest of the prophecy goes on to speak about, and we won't get into that, the rest of the prophecy goes on to speak about is how Assyria says, Ah, me, big powerhouse. I've, I've captured Israel now. Look out, Judah, here I come. That was not in God's plan. But Assyria decided, hey, I've captured one part of, of this nation. I'm going after the rest of it. And so Assyria steps out of the bounds, the realm of what God would allow, and became a very arrogant nation wanting to conquer and destroy anything in its path. In fact, the idea that Assyria wanted to destroy Israel versus punish them is the very reason that we find Nahum written. That's the very reason. Nahum is a judgment against Assyria, but it's an encouragement to those who are captive, those who are captive during this time. So, let's go to Nahum. If you've got your finger still there, back in Nahum. So there's our history of Assyria and Israel. Let me give you a little textual. Again, I can run through a lot of different points, but I'm going to hit a few high points, and you're going to find it really in verse 1 of chapter 1 there of Nahum. Nahum 1.1 says, An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. And I'm not even going to get into Nahum being of Elkosh. We really don't know where Elkosh was. Most historians predict there are three different places it could have come from, but that's not the point we need to understand. 
There are three other ways that this is described, though. It says there, this is a book written with quotes from God directly to two groups of people, is what he's saying. It's a book written. Most prophecies, if you remember, come to a prophet and that prophet speaks it. This one, Nahum writes it down in a book form. As a matter of fact, if you spend some time reading the background of Nahum, you'll find that in verses 2 through 8, which is what Dave taught through, it was an acrostic of the Hebrew alphabet. I don't know if Dave had mentioned that. And so Nahum organizes this book in a way that will both condemn Assyria and encourage the captive of God's people. Secondarily, there is a vision contained in there. Uh, chapter 2, 3 through 10 is a vision of what will come. Nahum gets to see the things that will happen. And that's why he says there, the book of a vision. And thirdly, it's an oracle. An oracle is this. It's a judgment call on something. In Isaiah 13, 1, um, Isaiah writes down, an oracle concerning Babylon, the judgment to come against them. Isaiah 15.1, an oracle concerning Moab, what will come against them. And in 17.1, an oracle concerning Damascus. And so this word oracle contained in this book is a reminder that this is a judgment against a group of people. And fourthly, uh, most importantly as well too, is to understand the theme of this book. That's what Dave taught on 7 and 8. Isaiah, or um, Nahum 1, 7 and 8. There it is. Look with me again, these verses. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. He knows those who take refuge in Him. But an overflowing flood, He will make a complete end of the adversaries and He will pursue His enemies into darkness. And so not only is this the theme verse, but it actually is the example of the verses that we'll look at today that there's a balance between two different groups here. There's a group of people that those who take refuge in Him, and there's a group of people that God's wrath will overflow upon them. And it actually is an interesting picture because as you'll read about some of the um, history of, of Nineveh, they were conquered in such a way, their gates were open, their, their water gates were open, and some of it was washed away by floods that had come in an area that Nineveh was hard-pressed to get a lot of water. And so you know God is doing a work here by even speaking this before the destruction. And so there is our balance. That's our context to set us up here. Okay? Now for our text. Our text. Look with me in verses 9 through 15. And what you'll find in your outline there is we're going to skip around a little bit, okay? Because as we talk about the two different people groups, we want to make sure we capture the picture that God is giving to us to understand here. And so we're first going to look at that first people group, God Opposes the Proud, I titled it, as a part of our title. In verses 9 through 11 and verse 14. Okay? So those are the verses we'll look at first, and then we'll follow up with the other verses that are contained with this entire section. Verse 9, in fact, just verse 9a. Read with me. What do you plot against the Lord? A judgment against uh, Assyria, Nineveh here. What do you plot against the Lord? 
He will make a complete end. Stop there. You ever play... Um, um, I'm sure you have. You've played strategic board games. I know my son loves Risk, uh, other games like that. And you plot against each other. And most likely, we're all on a level playing field, okay? But what God is saying here is, Nineveh or Assyria, what you plot against the Lord, it's kind of like playing battleship against God. And there's this clear background that you just see right into what they're plotting and what they're trying to accomplish. God says, what you're plotting against the Lord, I'm going to make a complete end. I'm going to make a complete end of that. Not only is the king of Nineveh going to come against a weakened nation, but he's going against God who created that nation. He's going against God. Proverbs 21, 30-31 says this, No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can ever avail against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Amen? Acts 5, 38-39. In this picture where Peter is, is, or, uh, Peter is going through the land and proclaiming the gospel, the good news, during this time. And the Jews are trying to figure out ways to snuff him out. And there's a man that comes forward who is a Jew and says to the council, the Jewish people there, he says this to them about what Peter is doing. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan is of men, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And so here we have in 9a, what do you plot against the Lord, Nineveh, Assyria? He will make a complete end to it. 9b goes on to say this in your text. Trouble will not rise up a second time. You see, Assyria, as we read in 2 Kings, has already captured Israel. And they're plotting to come against Judah during this time. And Judah's seeing this go on. But, but God is saying to Assyria, you will not bring trouble, trouble twice. Once is all you got. And you're going to be finished. Trouble will not rise again. In fact, verse 7 of chapter 1, as we read already, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in them. There has already been a day of trouble for them. They were existing. Judah was existing in such a way, and, and we didn't, we hadn't had time to look at the even Second Kings further on. But Judah was actually paying um, Assyria a little bit of money to say, "Okay, I understand you're the big guys on the block. Just stay away for a while. Give us some time." And so, in some ways, Judah began to even the word vassal, vacillate between God being their strength and a nation that they viewed and thought, this is a big country. We better at least pay them off a little bit to keep them away. Keep them away. And God is trying to encourage the people, trust in Me alone, because I will bring an end to this nation. I will bring an end. Look on with me in verse 10. For in verse 10 becomes an insight into how Nineveh and Assyria is about to fall. 
In fact, he gives three points here that we're going to highlight about how Assyria will fall. It says there, read with me, For they are like entangled thorns, one, like drunkards as they drink, two, they are consumed like stubble, fully dried. Let's look at each one of those. Number three there. The first one, for they are like entangled thorns. Second Samuel 23, 1 through 7 is a, is a big picture of David speaking his last words. And he says this about worthless men. He says, they are like thorns. Worthless men like thorns. Micah 7, 3 through 4, 3 and 4 goes on to talk about the wicked nations around them. They are like briar. They are like a thorn hedge. Ezekiel 28, 20 through 24 talks about a prophecy. A prophecy against the nation that was coming against Israel. And it said that this nation, this wicked nation, was like a thorn to Israel. You see, um, I don't know if some of you know, I actually have a landscape company, so I know a little bit about thorns. And let me correct your thinking first off. Roses don't have thorns, okay? Roses have prickles. Um, Thorns are found at the growing point of where a plant sends out a stem. Hawthorn is a great example of that. You look at a hawthorn plant and you see a little thorn coming out where the branch comes out. That's a true thorn. And what we look at a plant like that, all those thorns are sticking out for the most part, aren't they? They're always protruding out. And if you remember even Paul saying, I had a thorn in my flesh. And some would say it was an evil spirit that continually prodded him and was just a distraction to him. A thorn in his side, continually coming at him. And what God is saying about Nineveh and about Assyria is that you will become like entangled thorns. The thorns that you have caused going out will now become the problems that will come in towards you. It's wrapped back into you. The problems that you have caused will come back to you. You are like entangled thorns. Secondarily, he says, you are like drunkards as they drink. Now, I don't want to get into a lot of the issues of drinking and things like that, but most of us would know by example even um, the, the idea of drinking and continually drinking. And I'm not going to get into that whole issue, but the text is talking about a nation who is a drunkard who continues to drink. And the idea here is that there is no end. They just are continually consuming It's a good time. They're not fearing any problems that will come because of it. They have no conscience of what they're doing. They're not really thinking twice about what's going on. They just keep consuming it. They are drunkards that keep drinking. That's another way that they will become prone to a nation coming against them. They will lack control. They will be slow in their response. They will ignore and not forget to look out. Um, They continue to go on with drinking and parties and so forth. They lack awareness of the situation. You know, a lot of times we have warning signs about a lot of different things. And nations like this had fortified cities that had towers looking out. You'll read that in Scripture quite often. But they just weren't aware of what was coming at them. They had no clue. They were were putting their guard down would be another way of putting it. 
The Assyrians were happy-go-lucky people who had not many worries at all. In fact, Zephaniah, which is a prophet who spoke prior to this, said this about Nineveh. This is an exultant city. They lived securely. They said in their heart, I am and there is no one else. Zephaniah 2.15. Isaiah 19.14 says this about nations who um, just have little awareness of what's going on. The Lord has mingled with in her a spirit of confusion and will make an end to Egypt, staggering in all its deeds as a drunkard man staggers in his vomit. Isaiah 20, 24 says, The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Imagery there of how Assyria was about to fall. They put their guard down. Thirdly, in this description of how they'll fall, it says they are consumed like stubble, fully dried. At the end there. If you look back up to verse 4, it says that of chapter 1. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. This is God going to bring the start of judgment against them. And He does so by drying up these rivers that they're so dependent upon. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The land is in a famine. And it's a way of God bringing destruction, the start of destruction. People become so dependent upon some of these resources, and especially Assyria, who sat on a plateau. They didn't have the benefit that Babylon would soon have. Assyria was a little bit higher, right outside the Tigris River, which actually is where, right outside of Mon, um, Mas, how do I pronounce it? Um, Mosul, Iraq. Mansu, Mosul, Iraq. There you go. Thank you. So Nineveh is kind of in the area and region north of uh, Baghdad of where we have many a troops and friends at right now. And so Assyria was sitting on this little bit of plateau and it, they required pumping of water to get to a lot of places. And when sieges came towards the end of this book, it talked about how they had to bring buckets of water to throw on the fires and so forth coming. So God begins to dry them up in such a way. What happens when the plant withers? It becomes like stubble. It dries up and it's easy to burn then. Malachi 4.1 says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be like stubble. The day that is coming will be set ablaze, says the Lord, so that I will leave them neither root nor branch. See, God's destruction on evil will be permanent. And yet... I hope you're encouraged by that last word there. I'm going to, God says, I'm going to destroy evil completely. And if you remember in Romans, you remember how God says, I'm going to cut my nation down the, root, the, the tree branch, but I'm going to leave the root. See, God never throws away His own people. But He says to wickedness, I'm going to cut it down and destroy it completely. To arrogant people, to those who do not follow me. Isaiah 5.24, Therefore, as a tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as a dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom goes up like dust. And so God is continually talking about how Nineveh will fall. Verse 11, he goes on to say, For you came one who plotted evil against the, war, the Lord, a worthless counselor a worthless counselor. In Isaiah, 
In Isaiah 10, 17 through 11, we read a little bit about that. It talks about how they counseled against the people of Israel. 2 Kings 19 talks directly about this very thing. And in the same thought, 2 Chronicles 32, and if you would turn there, we'll look at that briefly. 2 Chronicles 32 talks about how they were a worthless counselor. Sennacherib was the king of Assyria at this point. Sennacherib was the king. And in 2 Chronicles 32, 10 through 15, gives us a picture, an insight of how he plots evil against the Lord and how he tries to draw the people away. And in 32, 2 Chronicles 32, verse 10, verse 9, I'll start with. And after this, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, who was besieging Lachish with all its forces, sent his servants to Jerusalem to Hezekiah, Here is our king of Judah, Hezekiah, the very time in which Nahum was written, king of Judah, and to all the people of Judah who were in Jerusalem, saying, and here's what Sennacherib was taunting Israel with. Thus says the king of Assyria, on what are you trusting? And he's not just talking. He's outside the walls here. Get this picture. He's outside the walls hurling this to the people on the wall. He's not going in secret talking to the king. He wants to make sure the people fear Assyria more than they fear God. And he says there, Thus says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, On what are you trusting that you endure the siege of Jerusalem? Is not Hezekiah misleading you you that he may give you over to die by famine and thirst when he tells you the Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria? Has not this same Hezekiah taken away high places and his altars and commanded Judah and Jerusalem? Before one altar you shall worship, and on on it you shall burn your sacrifices? Do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the people of the lands? Here's the arrogant Sennacherib. We were the gods of the nations of those lands, not able to deliver their hands out of my hand? Who among all the gods of the nations that my fathers devoted to destruction was able to deliver the people from my hand? That God should be able to deliver you from my hand? What an arrogant man he was. Now, therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive you or mislead you. You are in this fashion and do not believe him. And it goes on from there. Do you get the idea of the worthless counselor? He was very arrogant in his ways. And you can imagine the hearts of the people trembling and thinking about that. Well, maybe we should go with them. You know, he is right. There's a lot of people out there. I don't know how we're going to stand against this. I mean, we really don't even see who our God is, do we? I mean, we're told to go to a a temple. You imagine the minds beginning to think that. And it's not a whole lot different than us today. You know, a lot of times we think, God, show yourself. You know, I'm, I'm really struggling here. I've got a lot of things coming against me in the world. There's a lot of evil being plotted against my own heart, my own soul. And it's hard to stand. It's hard to stand. There are a lot of Sennacheribs out there coming against you. But take heart. God will do a work. God will do a work. Verse 14, back in Nahum. Let's go back there. See the idea of the worthless counselor? Now let's finish with this last judgment against them and then we'll move on to the next point. And it'll go a little quicker from here. 
But for you to get an idea of the arrogance that Sennacherib was. Nahum 1.14 says this, The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods I will cut you off. The carved image and the metal image, I will make you a grave, for you are vile. I think your NASB translation says, The Lord has issued commands concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will cut off idol and image from the house of your gods. I will prepare a grave, for you are contemptible. A few things about this verse. The idea that His name will no longer be perpetuated. Perpetuated meaning eternal, ongoing. And of course, the negative to that is no longer. Your name will no longer exist among anyone. That's a very mighty thing to say about a nation who's the most powerful at that point. But we have a big God. And it's God who's speaking this. And it's God who will complete that. And so His name will no longer be perpetuated. Also, it was a common practice for Assyria not only to destroy a nation, but to plunder it and to remove all the things. And do you know what Assyria used to do when they came back? They would line the streets of Nineveh with all that they captured, including the people. And so here the people who are captured are in the downtown area and in these areas, and they would line all their jewels before them. How arrogant of them. Look what we brought back with us. People and all of their things. And their storehouses were filled to the guilt. They were loaded up. And God says, I'm going to bring a nation against you, Nineveh, against you, Assyria, and you will no longer have gold and silver. It will be gone. Your gods will be cut down. Your carved image, your metal images, all of the pictures, they contain three to 4,000 gods. And the most popular of them, Athur, I believe is his name, is not really even anything except a description of many of the three to 4,000. They had many gods. They worshipped a lot of things. And all of those will be destroyed and removed. The most important thing about this verse, though, it says the Lord has given commandment about you. I want to bring an encouraging word to you. God completes and does what He says He's going to do. It's important for us to note that when God says, I command it to be done, He does it. And I think about that as I studied this verse. And I was thinking about this. What about salvation in your own life? Was that not a completed work? Completed at the cross? Completed when He calls you? Completed in Philippians 1.6 until glory, He's continually working on you and I'll continue to work on you until I complete it to the end. What a great reminder and encouragement that we have a God who completes things. And that's what He says against this nation. I will bring a complete end to you. I command it. In fact, even on the flip side of that, God doesn't allow sin to go unpunished and God will destroy Assyria. Even Ezekiel 20.32 quotes that and talks about Assyria's finishing off. I will make a grave for you. You are vile. He will utterly destroy them. There will no longer be anything left of them. So with that in mind, how much more will these, these words of judgment be an encouragement to us? Now look, let's look at the verses that contain the grace that God gives to those who humble themselves. Okay? Flip back to verse 12 now. And let's walk through these verses. They'll go a little quicker, kids. Hang with me, okay? 
You're doing a great job. Verse 12a says this. In the, in the title of this point, God gives grace to the humble, people group two. Thus says the Lord, they are full of strength and many. Here God is speaking to those captive. They're full of strength and many. But you can sense the but there. They are full of strength and many. They will be cut down and pass away. Be encouraged about that. Don't worry about the numbers. Isn't that true, though? Don't you re- even remember when they came into this land, similar to that? When, when, the, when those 12 went in and they came back and said, man, those are some big people in there. I think we ought to turn and go around the other way. And at least two of them had faith enough to say, you know what, the size doesn't matter. And that's what God is saying here. They are at full strength and many. In fact, this is a, a great uh, verse as well, too, to kind of give a little context of when this was written, about 630 B.C., which was about the timing of the peak of Assyria. They are full strength and many. And yet they will be cut down and pass away. In fact, he goes on to say, Though I have afflicted you, I will no longer afflict you. That's that thought there again. Sin doesn't go unpunished, does it? In fact, you remember in Hebrews 12, 5 and 6, where it talks about, and God disciplines those whom He loves? He says, Though I have afflicted you, you captives, Israel, Judah, I've afflicted you, yeah. You deserve that, is what He's saying. It's my discipline upon you. We need not squimmer, or what would be the word? Squiggle out of these things. They're in a very difficult situation. They were under oppression of another nation. I have afflicted you, God says, and I will no longer afflict you. There comes an end to some of these things. Lamentations 3, 31 and 32 is a great reminder of that. And yet both of these, those in this verse, though they're full strength, though I have afflicted you, bring us a great encouragement Though you wondered, I will bring you back because my discipline is finished with you. God continues to speak to His people and talk to them. Look at verse 13 as He continues to talk to them. 13 says, And now I will break His yoke off of you and will burst your bonds apart. When it is God who disciplines, it is God who frees. We need to remember that. I think a lot of times, and I... I, Maybe I can stop for a moment and just... I, I, I don't know many of you. I don't know of a lot of you as well, too. But I do know there are times in my life when I remember early on in my walk, sometimes I come to certain doctrines that are being taught that I don't fully... I, I don't think Scripture fully supports. And I, I know this was a thing back in the 80s and so forth, but casting off of demons and things like that. I won't get into much of that. We understand Satan's work in our life. He is... He is alive and well in this world. The prince of the air. But I think sometimes we forget that God uses any instrument to bring discipline in our own life. And sometimes that was just a way to rid themselves of what they didn't like. I'm just going to get rid of this this trial in my life. I'm going to get rid of this evil in my life. No. It is God who disciplines. It will be God who frees. Remember that. He says, I will break those bounds, that yoke that's on you. When it is God who raises up nations, it's God who will bring them down. 
And it is our ways that shackle us, but it is only God who frees us from those things. It's our ways that shackle us. Sin shackles us. Lastly, this verse is a great encouragement, I hope, to you. Verse 15 is the last words in this grouping of verses that we're looking at this morning. Verse 15 goes on to speak to this nation under captivity. Behold upon the mountains the feet of Him who brings good news, who publishes peace. God says, you who are captive, look up. And it is true that literally they needed to look up. Why? Because soon Babylon Babylon and the Medes will be coming into Assyria to conquer and destroy them as God has predicted will happen. He literally says for them to look to the mountains, look for that to come. It will happen. But it's a great reminder to us this morning, even as we're singing this morning, and I think that's one of the verses that caught my eye in what we'll sing when we finish today. God is the one who provides all of these things and we need to look to Him for this, for the salvation of these things. As a matter of fact, is it not the spiritual sense that Paul quoted this verse, a similar verse in Romans 10, 15, where he says, look to the one who brings good news of peace. Paul was speaking about the good news of salvation, a spiritual good news. But what a great picture it was, because if you look that up back into here is where it came from in Nahum and also in Isaiah, what a great reminder of the picture that a nation that is oppressing a people is also the picture of evil upon our own soul. And if you're apart from Christ this morning, that's where you stand this morning. Evil is continually upon you. And God will free you from that. He says, look to the feet of Him who brings good news. The good news of the Gospel comes to free you from the bonds of evil and from sin. It doesn't mean that we're apart from sin. We'll always have sin before us until we go in glory. But it does mean that we have freedom to say no to those things. And unless you have that personal relationship with Christ, You stand like the nation that is in that second group, that first group there. And so look the latter part of this verse, what he says here. Who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He utterly will cut them off. And let me just say this. What should Judah be doing when this people comes to free them? It's what we're doing this morning. Worship. He says, keep your feast. Keep your vows. Keep doing the things that you should be doing all day long. Every Sunday. Every day. Week in and week out. Worship Me. Keep your focus upon Me. That's the only way you're going to make it through life as you walk as a believer is to continually keep the vows that God has covenanted with you. The psalmist says in Psalm 116, 14, and 18, I will pay my vows to the Lord. David did that very thing. This should be an action for us even while we're in trials and persecution. So, here's our message this morning. Group one, we have an arrogant nation who is opposed to God. 
It looked wicked, didn't it? But let me bring some application to us this morning as that last point there. Let me bring some thought of application here. Let me just say that if you are apart from Christ and the most moralist of person, you will still oppose God. You may not be Assyria. You may not be known as an arrogant person. But you oppose God. You oppose God. And your life is centered around even doing the things that you think are best apart from what Scripture calls us to do. You oppose God. And so I call to you. Is that where you are this morning? High schoolers, junior hires, kids. Do you have that personal relationship with Christ that understands that you are opposing God and have a wrath over you as evil as this destruction will come against them, that nation? So will it be for you when the end comes and God returns, Christ returns. You are either for me or against me. You oppose me. You oppose me. Group one. You need to repent and turn from your ways. Turn to the Lord for, and look to Him, for He brings salvation of freedom. Only Him. Group 2. I want to read an email for you that I think gives us a perfect example of what it's like to live during times. We have many oppositions in our life. And we have many decisions to make in our life that affect how the world sees Christ in us. You have, as Gordy even said in prayer meeting, and this young man has just moved into a new house. He's got this new house, and the imagery was is that you're a lighthouse now of where you're at. You're a lighthouse there. What does it mean to be a lighthouse in a world? Does it mean to have our own rights of everything and to make sure that we're proclaiming um, and, and just barking out everything? Um, and opposing every evil that's around us, yes, we should not tolerate it. But what does that look like in our life? Group people, or group two, people number two here, those who humble themselves, what does that walk look like? Well, I want to read you an email that was forwarded to me. And I don't mean to read this to get you to tug on your heartstrings, but this really struck me as a perfect example of what it means to walk with the Lord during times of oppression. We live in a nation that doesn't have this necessarily. We have other things we deal with. But here is a nation I'm about to read about who has that time of oppression. It was a time in which just recently has occurred. This was forwarded to me. We know that 80% of the town of Melaboa in Aca was destroyed by the tsunami. Waves of 80% of the people also died. There is one of the towns that was hit the hardest. But there is a fantastic, fantastic testimony of Melabo. I may not be pronouncing that right. In that town, there is about 400 Christian. They wanted to celebrate Christmas on December 25th, but there was, they were not allowed to by the Muslims in Melabo. They were told if they wanted to celebrate Christmas, they needed to go outside of the city and on a high hill there and celebrate Christmas. Because the Christians desire to do this and celebrate Christmas, the 400 believers left the city on December 25th, and after they celebrated, they stayed overnight on the hill. 
As we all know, the morning of December 25th, there was an earthquake that followed by a tsunami, waves destroying most of that city of Melibo, and thousands were killed. The 400 believers were, were on the mountain and were all safe from destruction. Now the Muslims of Melibar are saying that the God of the Christians punished us for forbidding the Christians from celebrating Christ's Christmas in the city. Others are questioning why so many Muslims died while not even one of the Christians died there. Had the Christians insisted on their rights to celebrate Christmas in the city, they would have also died. But because they humbled themselves and followed the advice of the Muslims, they all were spared the destruction and can now testify of God's marvelous protection. This is a testimony of the grace of God and the fact that that as believers we have no rights in the world. Our right is to come before God and commit our lives to Him. Our right is in kneeling down before the, before the Lord Almighty and commit our ways to Him. He is our Father and is very capable of caring for His children. Praise the name of the Lord. What does it look like for us as people group two to walk humbly with the Lord? Does it mean to flee the trials and tribulations or the nations that tell us what to do? I don't think so. I think what it looks like for us is that we need to live in light of the world that we're in here, displaying Christ in obedience to where we're called to obey and loving those around us and especially loving our brothers because it's through that that we'll see, that the world will see. It is, it's through that move even yesterday of all the people that came around you guys. And it's that love of Christ for our brothers that the world begins to see uh, the love that Christ has for us. So I challenge you that with, with you this morning. This message out of Nahum. Two different people groups. God opposes the proud, but will give grace to those who humble themselves. Where do you find yourself this morning in that? Trusting in His grace? Or humbling or, or are you opposing God? I'm going to pray that I'm going to have Jay come up and sing this song for us. I believe Steve's going to come and close the service, and then I'll meet with the kids over here in a little bit. So let me just close our time in prayer. Father, thank You that You have given grace to us, and that grace is greatest seen in the salvation of each one of us that You have given to Thank You for the grace and mercy You've displayed in my life and each one of our lives here that trust in You for salvation. And Father, I pray that Your hand of conviction will be upon those who are apart from You, those who may not think they're bad but still oppose You. And so, Father, I just pray that You would convict them. Father, may we walk from here having a greater love for You and an understanding of the love that You have for us, even as we think about the love of God. Thank You again for Your kindness to us and for this time together. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.